Well, this is Ed Stetzer Live, and this and every Saturday at this time, we have, well, some hopeful and helpful conversations, and so we're going to lean in on one of those today. And uh, I I should say to you that I recognize the program today as ironically called Ed Stetzer Live, because I'm actually not live, like most of you, um, take some time off at the end of the year. And so we have brought some friends in and in and around some of the holidays. We, of course, we had Ann Voskamp on Thanksgiving weekend. We're super excited to do that. And I have a, a, another friend that I'm bringing in for our conversation today. Her name is uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. And I'm going to introduce her more in just a minute. But my, my point about saying that is, is that we are not taking your calls today. Not that we don't want to. Not that they wouldn't be awesome. But we're actually with our families as well. So, But we have a guest that... Uh, for a fun fact, actually, we were in the same place in 1988, about 50 feet from one another. Didn't know each other till decades later, uh, but Buffalo, New York on our brains. My wife's a graduate of Buffalo State College, and, and uh, we've got Karen's got history around all those places. But Karen Swallow Pryor, she's a reader, a writer, and a professor. And I think it's interesting that reader is in that bio, but she's the author of the book we're going to talk about today, The Evangelical Imagination. I'm going to read the whole subtitle so you make sure you get what we're talking about here, how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. Very well-received book. People are talking about it all over the place, but she's also like written a whole slew of books as well on reading well is great, finding the good life through great books. Um, books my daughters really enjoyed, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, and Abolitionist. Anyway, there's there's lots more that's there as well. Her writings appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Christianity Today, Think Christian, The Gospel Coalition, uh, lots of other places as well. Okay, and, and I should mention that she lives, her and her husband live on a 100-year-old homestead in central Virginia. So uh, they're, they're kind of living, and she she tweets these pictures on her run. So I think she basically lives in the woods. And so this is what literary people should do and the way they should be, Karen. But thanks for joining us on the program from the midst of your woods in Virginia. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. It's beautiful here today. I just want to say, so I I do love Virginia. Oh, I live in Southern California. It's 72 degrees. And so let's talk about beautiful. But anyway, that's, but I do like your your run pictures. They're like... um, they inspire me to want to run one day. But anyway, that's something I've <laughs> never done and never will do as well. All right, so you got this new book. And of course, you know, I mean, it's not that new. It's been out in 2023, and I wanted to have a conversation with you. So I'm so glad we got it in before the end of the year so I didn't have to say last year you wrote a book. <laughs> but even the title, I mean, it's just you almost have to explain and define every word in the title <laughs> uh, using the word evangelical and imagination. Evangelical, I mean, you and I could talk about that all day, but if you wouldn't mind, you know, we've got lots of people listening. Uh, most people, you know, most people living their lives, they're going to First Wesleyan or going to this non-denominational church or they're Pentecostal. They don't use the word evangelical to describe themselves, but other mm-hmm. people use the word evangelical maybe to describe them. So let's start there. What do you mean when you're going to talk about the imagination of this thing called evangelical? What's evangelical? Mm-hmm. No, I'm so glad you asked that. And you're absolutely right. In the past several years, the word evangelical has been used by, you know, newspaper headline writers, pollsters, sociologists, um, politicians, all in ways that describe a group of people that 
seemingly in some ways don't have a lot in common because as you said people tend to identify as christian first um if they are that and then by their churches their denominations but what a lot of people don't realize is that the evangelical is actually 300 years old it began in england in the 18th century in america with the great awakenings and even if we don't identify as that um if we belong to a number of different denominations and share this heritage, we are evangelical, whether we call ourselves that or not. And uh, I actually, you mentioned Fierce Convictions. I'm glad that you did that. I, I love that book about Hannah Moore, the uh, 18th century abolitionist and poet and reformer, because it was through studying her when I was in graduate school that I learned this rich evangelical history that I didn't know about. And that is actually when I began to claim uh, my evangelical identity, because I realized these are my people. Hannah Moore is my person. William Wilberforce is my person. And so there's a lot of more of that history in that book. Uh, but I do give, you know, a little bit of coverage and definition in this book about what evangelicalism is, draw on some scholars. Most people will say um, that David Bebbington, the foremost living church historian, um, his definition is the one that most people will at least start with. And I think if I, ex you know, explain that, most people will say, yeah, that's me. Um, and that is really emphasizing the centrality of the Bible is God's authority in our lives, um, emphasizing the conversion experience, um, having sort of an activist bent, which can describe lots of evangelicals on the right and the left, and emphasizing the crucifixion of Christ um, for our salvation. Those are really the four things that define evangelicals and have for 300 years. Um, and that's our history. And that's the, that's the definition that I'm using in, the, in this book. And that's why I still call myself an evangelical, because that really describes me. Yeah, me too. And of course, I'm writing a book on the current state and future of evangelicalism, where I do push back a little bit on what's called the Bebbington quadrilateral. But I think you said it rightly, everyone sort of has to start there. It is the mm -hmm. standard. So high view of the Bible, centrality of Christ's work on the cross, we call it crucicentrism, conversionism, people are born again, uh, and the idea of activism. And and again, the movement, as you know, I, I think those ideas go back more than 300 years, but the movement sure. as itself sort of frames and forms. Okay, so so the reason I want to say that at first is that that probably means that the vast majority of you who are listening on Moody Radio, partners and affiliates, you know, we're on 250 different outlets, you know, you're, if you're up in New England or you're down in California, you're up in, you know, Washington State, down in Florida, uh, that's probably you in either uh, your self-description, evangelical, or what we might call evangelical adjacent. So you're shaped by some of these ideas. Okay, so that starts our conversation because it's the evangelical imagination. Now, I just came back from Oxford. You know, I was teaching uh, earlier this month at uh, Wycliffe Hall there and took my students over to um, the Kilns and C.S. Lewis and talked about the Chronicles of Narnia. So I think the first thing people talk about, think about when they think about the evangelical imagination is going to be Veggie Tales and Narnia. So is that what <laughs> the imagination? I mean, it's not, but unpack what you mean I, right. by the second, uh, the third word in the title, which is yeah, imagination. Yeah. And of course, I am talking about imagination the way we usually think of it. And I do give a mention to Lewis. I don't think the Veggie Tales make it, but Lewis and Tolkien are, are mentioned uh, as I was working on the book and, and talking about it in terms of 
this of this title, people would say, oh, are you going to cover George McDonald? Are you going to cover C.S. Lewis? And I'm like, yes, yeah. But, but you know, that's not really what the book is about. Um, right. I do talk about the imagination and, and how we all have an imagination and use our imagination more than we realize, because I think we tend to think of, well, just as you showed, we, you know, it, it's Lewis who has an imagination or McDonald who has an imagination. And, and we think that maybe we don't have uh, a, an active imagination or good imagination, but imagination is so much more than that. It, I mean, it really is quite literally um, the manifestation of our being made in the image of God. Like we are literally his imagination. Um, I could talk about that like forever because I think that's just right. so interesting and powerful. But beyond our own sort of individual personal imaginations that we develop or starve or whatever we might do with them, there also is this thing that the philosopher Charles Taylor calls a social imaginary. Right. And that's really what I'm talking about in the book. And, and a social imaginary is, is just sort of a, a pool of the stories and images and, and metaphors from my subtitle, but it, our, our expectations, our desires, our assumptions that we inherit from our community or, or our, really our plural, our communities. There's no one social imaginary. So they're just sort of the things that are lurking there under the surface. Taylor calls them precognitive. We might not even be aware that they are there, but they're forming our assumptions and our expectations, uh, whether we realize it or not. And we inherit them from our traditions. And if we're evangelical, then we have inherited many of those from the movement in our own religious um, and social expectations and assumptions. And that's what I'm sort of trying to unpack in the book. Yeah, you know, it makes perfect sense. Okay, so key keywords to remember as we go through this. Of course, Charles Taylor writes about this, but, but you unpack this in an evangelical perspective, the, what we call the social imaginary. So that's key to understand the whole conversation. So, you know, if you grew up in church, you've heard, you know, you've seen some art and maybe some songs and stories and, and as you mentioned, metaphors, right? And then those all come together. I'm going to quote Karen here, quote, shapes us and our world more than any other human power or ability, unquote. Okay, so then, so this social imaginary, your your thesis here is that evangelicalism, which is what most of us, whether we use the term or not, or listening, are sort of in, has been shaped by these sets of ideas and more, and 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 in some ways misshapen. And we're gonna and we're gonna mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about that. Uh, and we're going to talk about that and kind of unpack what that looks like kind of throughout our conversation today. But I want to say to you that you really, in, in this short conversation, this is not the kind of book that I'm going to be able to encapsulate in, 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 in an interview, in, in a one-hour interview. Uh, again, the title of the book is The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture, but doesn't stop there, a Culture in Crisis. And we're going to unpack and sort of walk through what that looks like. So when we return, I'm going to jump in, start kind of talking about, this, walking through some of these questions, get a feel for what that looks like. Uh, we're going to probably in our next segment really unpack what are some things that shape that social imaginary as well. I want to remind you that this is a pre-recorded program, uh, so we can't take your calls, but we do want to have your engagement. I think you're going to be, well, I think it's going to be a really thoughtful conversation. So stay with us continue the conversation in just a moment here on Ed Stetzer Live.
Okay, we're back, and we started our first segment using terms like social imaginary, evangelical imagination, the Bebbington quadrilateral. Maybe you feel like you're in class a little bit, but that's okay. You know, I'm the dean of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Karen's taught at multiple colleges and universities. Uh, this this show is gonna 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 be a good educational experience for for all of us as well. And and Karen, I mean, give, I kind of defined a little bit social imaginary, some of what, how this kind of shapes a people. I mean, help us understand it a little bit more. Yeah, that you know, we're in the Christmas season right now. And so there's this example, that I think that will be really helpful to, to explain what I'm talking about. Uh, when we talk about these sort of unexamined assumptions or ideas that we don't think about. And that is the idea or assumption that many of us have that the angels sang to the shepherds in the field. And, you know, we have beautiful songs that talk about that. But when you look at the scriptures, at least the translations I have, it doesn't say anything about the angels singing. They spoke, they delivered a message and so forth. And so we have this idea of them singing from the hymns and poetry that we've inherited. Now, this is actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking about the angels singing. Um, and even the word singing could be a metaphor to describe the way they delivered the news. And so it's not, you know, a devastating error that we make to imagine it that way. But it is helpful to, to look at the scriptures, see what the scriptures exactly say, and then think about why our poets and hymnists might have expressed it this way and how that has shaped what we think about Christmas. And then, of course, we could talk about all of the manger scenes and so forth that are not literal representations of what happened at Christmas. All attacking in many years of events in one scene, which is wonderful and beautiful. But if we don't realize what they're doing, then we sort of think that the manger scene literally represents the Christmas story, and then we make some mistakes. That's kind of what I'm talking about. We inherit so many of these images and ideas. They're beautiful. They're wonderful, but they may not be entirely accurate. Okay. So the first lesson we've learned is Karen hates Christmas. So that's an important <laughs> lesson. And we've just gone through Christmas. You know, we're now headed towards New Year. But here's the thing. I mean, Karen, they all sang, Glow. We, we know that. We saw that. Like, yep. But it is interesting, yeah. though, how it does... Like, I mean, people, some people will be like, well, of course they sang, but the Bible doesn't say that. So, but we get these things sort of in the water. I've got a lot of word pictures we could use to sort of describe what these things are. And so we often become unaware of the imagination and the role it plays. So unpack for us a little more. Because you, And you've got these uh, metaphors and images. You talk about awakening, conversion, testimony, improvement, sentimentality materiality, domesticity, empire, reformation, and rapture. Um, and, and we're going to come back to those because I want to go to the one in conversion, which I think is so central. But talk to us a little bit about this imagination and what role does it play? Unpack that a little more. Yeah, so again, we all have our own individual imagination, our ability to make images in our minds, our ability to sort of imagine in a way what might happen tomorrow or how we should have had a conversation yesterday. Those are all uses of our imagination. And yet we also use the imagination in the, in the way that we tend to think of to create music and art and literature. Um, and those things shape us so much that they can carry with them 
um, these assumptions that we don't necessarily examine. And so we have, we're all part of different communities. We're, we're going to inherit those things from our family traditions. We're going to inherit them from our educational institutions, our churches, um, and our culture. And so as evangelicals, um, we have inherited many of those that I, that I, you just listed in, in the, the mm -hmm. chapters that I developed, but also many, many more. This book is by no means exhaustive. It's just hopefully setting an example um, to help us all think about how these stories, images, and metaphors have shaped the way we think and find out, you know, where are they true and good and where maybe have they been distorted and then therefore led us astray in what we think we know. Right. And a key part of it is what's been distorted, but what is good? I mean, let's start there. I promise we're going to get to what's been distorted. That's a key part of the book. But are there some parts of the social imaginary, the the things that we, the water which we swim, we don't even know that's there, but it's influencing us that are good? Yeah. Well, I, can I start with conversion? I think that's a really, you know, that's one of the I, chapters. I love, I, I will okay. tell you that. Okay. And so in the book that, in the book that I'm writing, I think that conversion is not one of four attributes of evangelicalism. I think it's the center pole of the mm. whole enterprise of evangelicalism. So I'm super high on conversion, mm. just giving you that, that. I think that's a defining factor. So talk to us about how our, the social imaginary impacts our view of conversion. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad to hear that because, because you know, even with the four that Bebbington gives that we just talked about, I, I think conversion is the central one as well. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, let's, let's talk about what's good about conversion. Um, we must be born again. <laughs> the Bible yeah. says that, right? Uh, there are different words and phrases that are used. Conversion is another one that describes that. And so we know that this is something that happens in the life of the believer. And the reason why it's so central to evangelicalism, um, going back 300 years, uh, is not because evangelicals invented it. Obviously not. It's, it's in the Bible. It's th even throughout uh, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. But the movement that we now call evangelical um, re-emphasize this because it began in a context in which there was a state church. You know, England ha has and had um, a national church. And so essentially, by default, if you are born um, into that nation, unless you are something else, you are a member of the church and then you later get confirmed. Um, but in that context, especially in the 18th century, I'm sure it's changed now, but in the 18th century, um, the idea of conversion had been kind of lost. And so the evangelical revival wanted to emphasize the need for every person to have their own sort of come to Jesus moment and have that conversion. And I think that, that that's a recovery of a biblical truth. Um, it's one that's continued through today. And it is a sort of literal thing in the you know, in the sense that we must be converted, we must be born again. But again, we can use different words to describe it. Uh, and we do use different words. Uh, but it's also kind of a metaphorical thing that's seeped into our, our imagination, our social imaginary. And that's why I use, you know, I use a number of examples of literal religious conversions in that chapter. But I also talk about um, a Christmas carol, an Ebenezer Scrooge, which portrays, I think, one, one of the most beautiful and powerful and um, winsome conversion stories in literature. Um, now, again, Dickens was a sort of Christian. We won't get into his theological 
errors and uh you know and, and accuracies um and he's not presenting a christmas carol to be like you know a, a an evangelistic story yet it still shows us the power of conversion um in a sort of metaphorical way relates to what we understand about conversion as well yeah so there's some sort of change wrought in the human heart in in literary examples that you just gave as well but that change wrought in the human heart is so central to what we think of as evangelicals and and sometimes the way we describe or call people to conversion would be kind of foreign to people, say, 500 or 1,000 years ago, but very, I think, very central. And I think, I think by and large, mainly something that evangelicals have rightfully uh, reemphasized where others have not. Okay, so you, but you go through and, um, you know, awakening, conversion, testimony, improvement. Um, these, these are different metaphors and images that you talk about. So uh, conversion, I think, is one that we're kind of going to relate to. But let's let's go to one that uh, that that maybe has implications that well that could be more challenging. Let's let's talk about one like rapture. So rapture mm-hmm. is one of the meta- metaphors, images, one of the pictures you talk about here uh, in the book. Um, you know, I believe that that we're going to be called up into the air to meet Jesus and and more. So tell me about how that fits into the mm-hmm. social imaginary. Yeah, there there is so much to say about that, and there are books written yes, on that indeed. topic. Yeah, you know, full disclosure, I do not land on a particular interpretation just because I haven't studied it enough. I don't care, <laughs> um, but it's just an interesting phenomenon in terms of our social imaginary. And so, I, earlier I mentioned that I talked about how these images and stories and expectations and understandings can be unexamined assumptions. And this is a great example because I, in the book, I talk about how, you know, I grew up um, in the church and I, you know, in, in sort of conservative Baptistic, you know, Bible churches of various kinds, but always of that bent. And I was, you know, I was a, a grown up adult finishing my PhD before I learned from a Presbyterian friend of mine that not everyone believes in a literal rapture. And I was just like blown away. I didn't even know that it was just an interpretation. I thought every Christian believed this. And she even told me that this was something that was, you know, popularized in the 19th century. Um, Now, again, without getting into whether Dabney's interpretation is the best or most correct or and so forth, it was just revelatory to me to realize that something I had taken as gospel truth um, that all Christians believed to realize that that was actually just yeah. an and let me, interpretation. And let me just, a little bit of clarity there too. So we're talking about the prevalence of the pre-tribulation rapture. Um, yes. And we say, you don't care. I want to clarify because I know Karen. She doesn't mean she doesn't <laughs> care that Jesus is not coming back. She's, she's talking about, like, for, is it pre-trib? Is it mid-trib? Is it pre-wrath? Is it post-trib? Because it's all kind of debates that Christians have right. in and around these issues. Right. But Because but I, I, I know you care that Jesus is coming back and he's going to rule and reign. But the question of of the timing of that, but the rapture itself, when people say that, they're thinking about a pre-tribulation rapture, and we can, well, we can think about movies and books that kind of frame and shape some of those things. So so how do some of those things impact us? Again, that social imaginary impact, the way we think about things, not just the rapture, but maybe think about the world, the way we think about others, the way we think about the future. 
Exactly. I mean, this, and this is something because I grew up with it and I grew up with, you know, the paperback copy of Hal Lindsey's late great planet earth in my house and, and watched, uh, uh, the, the movie, the, the movie left behind, um, sang the song and so forth. All of these things were deeply. There's a left behind song or uh, no wish. I'm sorry. I wish we'd all been ready. That's, that's. The oh, one. Larry yeah, Norman. I wish, I wish we yeah, all been ready. I can't ready, believe yes. we had a Larry Norman sighting on Ed Stetzer Live today. Okay. But yeah, so the okay. idea, that's a, yeah, that's yeah, a song that's... about uh, about the rapture occurring. Okay, good. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so um, that can have effects on us in terms of um, whether or not, you know, if we think that the rapture is is imminent, which obviously it could be, but if we live as though it is um, and therefore maybe neglect um, the things of this world um, and stewardship of this world and so forth as a result, I think that's a distortion of what God calls us to be. Or if on the other hand, as we see in some Christian communities, there's a sense that if, if certain things are to happen before Christ returns, um, then there are believers who sort of want to try to do all they can to expedite those things, thinking that human beings can maybe escalate God's timetable. Those are just a couple of examples of how, you know, just having these ideas can indirectly result in actions or lack of action on the part of believers as a consequence of those beliefs. And again, it's not to say any of them are right or wrong, but we should at right. least interrogate them and say, okay, you know, is this the best interpretation? And if so, what are the implications for this and what are not the implications of this? Right. So for example, in the case of the rapture of the end times, and we, we don't want to cheer on uh, wars that might mm -hmm. say, well, if this happens and this is a fulfillment of prophecy, but people still are dying and there's injustice mm -hmm. and brokenness that's there, uh, we want to we want to be the kind of people who are who are continuing to live for the kingdom of God as we wait for the return. And we just finished the Christmas season and we talked a lot about Advent, but we want to live in light of the second Advent, the second coming of Jesus and all that that means. Okay, we're going to continue our conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor in just a moment. We're talking about her book, The Evangelical Imagination. We're going to be back with your call. Well, not with your calls. We're going to be back with my questions more in just a minute with Karen Swallow Pryor. Okay, we're back at Stetzer Live with Karen Swallow Pryor, who's been a friend of years. And uh, and again, I'm one of the few people I've given her books to my own children. So uh, particularly her, her book, Hannah Moore, which is just amazing. Um, okay, so we, Karen, we, we were talking about like, uh, I mean, there are even positive aspects. I want to live in light of the soon and coming return of King Jesus. And I'm going to live as a kingdom citizen in the world. There are negative aspects. I could say, well, that means I shouldn't care about my neighbor now. I could just, you know, not care about this situation because Jesus is going to come back and fix it all. And that's a, mm -hmm. that would be an inappropriate application of that. Um, and, but conversion, I mean, Karen, what could be an inappropriate <laughs> view of conversion? I'm like, I... <laughs> I love conversion. My life's been changed by the power of the gospel. I share the gospel regularly, but there are some things that can be misunderstood or misapplied. Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is a great example to talk about what I'm trying to do throughout the whole book is to show how something good and true and right um, should, can be embraced and understood, but then can be distorted so that it becomes something not so good and true and right. And so with conversion, of course, who doesn't? 
as a Christian, love conversion and want to see conversion. Of course we do. However, if we embrace conversion um, at the expense of other things, um, such as, you know, discipleship um, and sanctification, if we emphasize just converting and not the growth, I mean, I don't think I have to really explain that um, deeply for us to know um, what can go wrong there. Um, but also yeah. if we emphasize conversion um, so much that we we don't care whether they are false conversions or just um, mm -hmm. quick decisions. So, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that the, some of the ways that we um, seek conversions today would not be recognizable by Christians from 500 or 1,000 years ago. And that, again, that doesn't make them wrong. We're modern people. We're probably going to use modern methods and, and we should examine them, but it's not wrong to use, um, you know, sort of the, 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 uh, things that we have and the technologies we have in our culture. However, if if we emphasize conversion so much that all we're really looking for is sort of the number of people that filled out a card or the number of hands that were raised or the number of people who came forward and we're just counting those numbers and not really following up or um, caring as much about the things that are harder to count and measure, then I think we have a distorted view of conversion. And I, I mean, that's one of the critiques. And, and the book does critique evangelicals. I want to talk about that um, because I think that's one of the fair critiques. Decisionism is mm -hmm. not evangelism. Conversionism by itself is not a, uh, a it's not a faith. Uh, you know, it's it's something, you know, that, that can be reductionistic. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So, so I think it's fair to say that the, the book in, 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 in the, in, the way that Karen, only Karen Swallow Pryor can write, it, it does help us to think about who we are uh, in the good, but also critiques some of the bad as well. Uh, but it also, you know, and again, maybe because because we're friends, but but I, there's there's so many books critiquing evangelicalism today, um, and, and yours is is not like so many of the others. So, kind of talk about how is what are some ways that you sort of wanted to speak into the moment and the movement that may be different than the the fair on the shelf. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I really, you know, this, um, as you said, there are so many books out there. I mean, evangelicalism is in a kind of crisis, as my subtitle yeah. suggests. And, and worthy and, and worthy of some critique, and, to be clear. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yes, to be clear. And we are seeing critiques that are coming from those outside the evangelical camp or those who have left it, you know, ex-evangelicals, as they call themselves. Yeah. Um, and we are seeing critiques that are, you know, that are, that are not theological, but that are political, the, you know, sociological, um, and so forth. Um, but I'm writing this, I mean, I think there are two things that make it different from the rest. N number one is that, as I said earlier, I am an evangelical. I'm trying to make this um, critique in love because because I want to um, see what I love corrected and improved and, and to, to grow and to be all that it can and should be. Um, but secondly, just simply by approaching this through the works of the imagination and our social imaginary, that's not something anyone has done before. Um, and yeah. a lot of readers have noted that. So it's a different, it is taking my field of expertise, which is literature, and then culture and other arts adjacent to it and saying, well, what can we learn about ourselves as a people through not just the works that are 
you know, done and painted and sung by evangelicals, but that are part of the culture that we're part of because we are shaped by that. And so it just brings together the things that I love, cultural criticism and evangelicals, and tries to say, well, what can we learn from um, the connection between these two things? And I, 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 for me, as I read it, I mean, I, I also saw the uh, the Mark Knoll endorsement. And Mark Knoll, of course, very for those in my field, he, he actually teaches Sunday school now in Wheaton, Illinois, just at a church mm. down the road from where I served at Wheaton. But uh, but you know, very well known, long term serving professor. But one of the things he said is that when he wrote Scandal: Evangelical Mind, it was quote an epistle from a wounded lover, and you reflect that uh, mm. in the book as well. You want the best and a better version of what we uh what we're how we're engaging our culture how we're understanding who we are and that's kind of what i saw it's like let's see the stories that shaped us uh for good and for ill and let's kind of dwell through those so again the, the book is the evangelical imagination i do want to encourage you to pick up a copy um of the book as as well all right so so come to the the crisis is the last word in the subtitle. Um, what is the crisis? What's or crises? Maybe what? What's going on? Yeah. Well, you know, as we said at the beginning of the show, I think just sim- there are several levels to the crisis. One is kind of an identity crisis um, because the term evangelical has become so hot and so contested and so controversial and people either want to embrace it or disown it and the headline writers want to use it and the politicians want to use it. It's just become something that's almost seems to have lost its definition. I want to retrieve the historical definition and help us to understand whether we still accept the label or not, at least understand what it has meant all this time and what it could mean in the future. So there's a crisis, I think, in terms of evangelical identity, just based on the the word alone. Uh, But then part of that crisis, we are seeing, as I mentioned already, we are seeing this whole movement called exvangelical. We're seeing empty the pews. We're seeing deconstruction. We are seeing you know, I'm an educator. I've been teaching in evangelical institutions for 25 years, just, you know, uh, up until recently. And so I have seen, I guess, at least two generations or three, depending on how you count generations, um, who have been brought up within the evangelical subculture and who have, again, I don't think this is intentional, but it's just how the subculture works. They have been taught or learned rightly or wrongly that these sort of subcultural um, principles and truths and preferences are the same as the gospel or the same as biblical Christianity. And when they've discovered that's not the case, they often don't know what to reject. So they reject it all. That to me is the real crisis is just simply that, that, cultural preferences and ideas and metaphors and images have gotten so tangled up with orthodox biblical faith that we've raised a couple of generations who don't know and and maybe some of us don't know how to disentangle what's cultural from what's truly christian yeah and i I think that's for a lot of people um you know you mentioned deconstruction earlier um, a lot of people have deconstructed the faith, and I want to say to them, or their faith, and maybe don't even identify as Christian anymore, mm-hmm. I want to say to them, man, it's not a bad thing to look and say, you know, this is not what the Bible actually teaches, right. but something that we could have picked up in culture and could have been shaped mm-hmm. by the past. So so shedding unbiblical ideas mm-hmm. seems like a good idea, but can often be painful because 
People don't really, I think, understand the strength of the social imaginary. They don't understand the strength of the of the the pull of being shaped by a movement as well. So, so if if somebody were to you know pick up the evangelical imagination um, and be challenged by some of these questions, what would you? I mean, what are you hoping they're going to end up like? What's going to be different in there? I guess you you lay out a pretty robust engagement of these questions. What are they gonna what are they gonna look like on the other side if they really mm. question some of these assumptions? You well, of course what I really want is for them to embrace, you know, the biblical faith, the one that has yeah. been held for two thousand years by the saints and the great cloud of witnesses and all of our difference and diversity. And but the other thing that I want to say, um, you know, I, I've already mentioned, I love cultural engagement. I love critiquing right. the culture and consuming the culture and creating the culture. I love all the cultural things. Um, I want to make clear that we cannot escape our culture or our subculture. And I don't think that that is what God designed for us to do. He created us to be creatures in this world for this time until the second coming in the new heaven and new earth. And so we are going to be creatures of culture. There's no way around that. So our task is what I'm trying to model in this book is to just say, oh, okay, this here's the biblical idea and here's how it got kind of tangled up in our human traditions. Let's separate the two. We don't have to reject the human traditions. We have to at least recognize um, that they're human and decide then whether they're good or bad and not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Karen Swell Pryor, we're going to continue our conversation with her one final segment in just a moment. Hey, this is Ed Setzer Live, and we're continuing our conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor. And um, Karen, the the uh, one of the things I think will happen when people read the evangelical imagination is they will be um, more aware. I, I actually, I, when my when my girls were younger, I kind of explained to them how how advertising works, mm. and you know, makes you need things that you didn't think you need, convinces you and more, you know, shapes unreasonable images, et cetera, et cetera. And so then they would actually watch television and they would say, dad, they're doing this. And I, and cause in other words, they could see now they, their, their eyes were opened to, I think people are going to read the evangelical imagination and they're going to say, Hey, I see how, how this shaped from this historical stream. I see how this came from, uh, this, this metaphor, this, this image that's, that's, that part of the part of the history of the movement for good or for ill, um, and depending on how immersed you are, I think people who come to Christ later are are often uh, like maybe as adults, someone thirty five years old. They're like, so wait a second, where did this come from? You know, and mm-hmm. and so, but for us, it's just sort of the maybe it's the water in which we swim. Um, so, what? How would you encourage people? Again, I want to encourage people to get the book, the Evangelical Imagination, read it, wrestle with it. But how can evangelicals pay more attention to? things like art and stories and images and metaphors in ways that you find helpful and, and productive. Mm. Oh, I love the illustration that you gave uh, with your girls and the commercials, because sometimes it, it's just as simple as, uh, as being awakened to that, just saying, Hey, this is what's going on. And then you can't turn it off. You can't turn off that sort of discerning critical lens that says, Oh, this is what they're doing. Um, so in some ways, just sort of identifying the problem is half the battle. Once you're aware of what you weren't aware of, then it can become 
easier to, to, to do that practice um, and to not and to not turn it off. Um, but it also has to be intentional. I mean, you kind of have to want to know that there are underlying assumptions out there and you have to be willing to question. Um, and, and, you know, I said in the previous segment that um, that we are creatures of culture and there's no way to change that. But I do think that modern American evangelicals, especially white ones, um, have a little bit harder time doing this because our sort of, we aren't just a subculture. Our culture has largely been the default one in America. And so we've been sort of holding the privileged position, which makes it a little bit harder to realize that it is the privileged position, if that makes sense. Other people can be like, oh, well, this isn't how we do it, or this isn't how I understood it in so many different ways. But because our larger culture tends to reflect more generally our own belief system or has, you know, until recently, that's debatable. But um, it just becomes harder for us to even recognize that it is a default position and not necessarily a universal understanding. For Christian, you know, and Christian, I, I think we would both agree that, that you know, that evangelical faith and practice, if even when it's you know going to be deeply biblical, it is increasingly out of the mainstream of culture. But, but, but you're talking that um, you know, particularly you know, if you're in the African American church, I don't know that that you know left behind series had the same impact right. in some of those exactly. contexts where exactly. where you know every every Christian. I mean, I've got I got all it's a ten sets, so ten volumes. I got all ten volumes and in my library. And I think you, you have to. So certainly I think, um, you know, I am preaching this Sunday at a, uh, at a Korean church and I, I'm just, I'm knowing that they're not shaped in the same way. I can't right. make a, a joke or a reference to something from left behind there. Like I could in most, right. uh, right. in most churches that I might preach at on Sunday. Okay. So, so if that's, so how then though, cause here's one of the questions that I'm right, right now, I think the culture, the broader culture also has a social imaginary and mm-hmm. it is, moved away. They used to be more connected, but now right. increasingly moved away uh, from the two. So what does that mean for a movement that's been shaped in and around its own social imaginary? If you're just joining the program too, you, mm-hmm. let me encourage you to listen back to the whole thing, because there's some technical things that we explained earlier that help understand some of the questions here. So as um, evangelicals or Christians in general, devout people of faith in general, are sort of now out of the mainstream of culture and have their own story. They're telling an alternative story that's shaped in ways that are good and bad, but the culture is telling stories that are increasingly different. What does that mean for the future mm. of our faith and engaging people around us? Mm. Oh, I love this question. And actually, I think it doesn't just mean something for the future, although maybe I'll get to that, but it means something for yeah. this present. Because okay. what we're seeing right now, we are seeing so many Christians who are rightfully anxious over the fact that our understanding of what marriage is and what it means, for example, or what human life is and what, you know, how that, that works itself out in issues like abortion and surrogacy and and those things, like the stories that we have that are rooted in biblical principles and shape our understanding are not the same ones that the rest of the culture has. We know that. But understanding the role that imagination and stories play in shaping those can help us to understand that when we are faced with people who don't believe that as we believe, um, they could be motivated by 
ill intentions that that could be the case but probably more likely they have different stories and metaphors and images that are shaping their understanding and 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 so we if recognizing that can help us realize we need to tell better more powerful stories and model our understandings better because they have a whole different set and that's the moment i think we're in now we're 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 sort of assuming wait no this is the story of how that plays out and we're assuming everyone who doesn't get it is either you know it, 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 it is doesn't have their own set of stories which they do and so doing that now will and how we do that now or don't do it is going to determine what the future looks like. So I think we need to meet this moment in the present and understand that we have different stories. And if we believe our stories are, are true stories, then we need to find better ways to tell and share them. Yeah. I, I, and I agree wholeheartedly. We need to find better ways to, to tell and share them. And, and, and again, maybe engage in art and culture making and beauty and in ways that are compelling to a world that, maybe sees some of uh some of the the cheap knockoffs that sometimes Christians produce that we all we all sort of make fun of you know when mm-hmm. when you see the slogans ripped off from Madison Avenue and you know put on Christian things but but so what would it look like if Christians evangelical Christians were to engage in some better storytelling that would both shape the movement but but also maybe maybe speak to a world that that is not interested in the story as it's now being told. And I don't mean the gospel story, because I, I think mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's certainly, there are people who are not interested in the gospel story, let me be clear. But they're also seeing us as evangelicals and not interested in the stories, the future we want. So what would it look like both for Christians and for engaging the world if we sought to tell some better stories? Hmm. So, of course, when we're talking about imagination, we have that literal understanding and application. So if we're talking about literal imagination and works of the imagination, we say, okay, yes, let's make better movies, um, films, songs, stories, all of those. And I'm all for that. You know, you know, I'm for that. But there are other ways that the imagination works that are less literal. And I think, for example, of an ongoing conversation I'm having with a person who's extremely pro-choice um and pro-euthanasia and we've been having conversations where i'm actually trying to understand where she is coming from Mm -hmm. so that i my story that i have about the sanctity of life can accommodate hers um because my story what i believe about the sanctity of human life does accommodate it but if i don't understand how it does by listening to someone else and understanding their story then i can't effectively um, tell my story. So we have to tell stories about life and marriage um, that take into consideration um, all of the hard cases and all of the complexities. And we haven't been good at that because we've been listening so much to our own stories. Fascinating. Karen Swalpryor, thanks for taking the time to join us on Ed Central Live in this pre-recorded program. I want to encourage people to get a copy of The Evangelical Imagination to wrestle through some of who we are and to be perfectly honest, who we want to be. And thanks as always for listening to Ed Central Live. Karen Hendren is our producer. Uh, we've been working with Bob Moreau as our engineer. And uh, let me remind you that Ed Central Live is a production of Moody Radio, which is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks so much for listening.